discussing uh, my heresy on Second Peter two four. Um, notice something here. You have um, a sequence. God not sparing the angels, not sparing the ancient world of Noah's day, and condemning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are three events, I believe, in the book of Genesis, in sequence. And <clears throat> that not sparing the angels fits right together with not sparing the ancient world of Noah's day. If you look back at Genesis chapter 6, well, this may not be the most common interpretation among brethren, it says in Genesis 6, Now it came about when men began to multiply in the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they cho- chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. But when he talks about the sons of God coming into the daughters of men, we know in the Old Testament, while the phrase is not not often used, the phrase sons of God is used for angels. I'd cite particularly the book of Job. A couple of references that are similar to that in the Psalms as well. And so the sons of God coming into the daughters of men would be angels cohabiting with human women. Now, you might say, well, I'm not sure about that view of Genesis 6, although I think that's probably the best view of Genesis 6 in and of itself, especially with how the phrase sons of God is used in the Old Testament, and the contrast between sons of God and daughters of men. But New Testament passages, I believe, strongly confirm that interpretation. I came to understand that through studying 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. (coughs) This is in a context talking about the, the victory of righteous suffering. So he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That is, he was, he was killed, but then he was raised. In which, in his resurrection, in, in, in the Spirit, also he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. So Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, went and proclaimed his victory to the, to the in-prison spirits. When he uses spirits like that, I believe that's a reference to angels. And he's talking about the spirits in prison, just like we've got them in prison here in 2 Peter 2.4. But these spirits in prison are the ones who once were disobedient in the days of Noah. And so you've got Jesus proclaiming his victory to the, the imprisoned angels who had previously been disobedient in the days of Noah. And then, to get all the evidence before us, look at Jude. I did not study Jude for a long time after I studied 1 Peter and came to see uh, 1 Peter as referring to Genesis 6. And when I found this reference in Jude, it's like, wow, this is amazing. This confirms something that didn't necessarily need confirmation from me, but I think it's really helpful. Jude 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain, which would be heaven, you know, but abandoned their proper abode, they came down to the earth. He is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, which is very parallel to what we read in 2 Peter 2. 
the next verse. Let me read them together. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he's kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom, Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, just like the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Now, strange flesh in the case of Sodom, Gomorrah, and the cities around them was men with men. Strange flesh in the case of the angels was angels with women. But he parallels the angels with Sodom and Gomorrah in the sense that they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And the only time that I, I know about when the angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh is in the case of Genesis 6. So I think all of that put together, you know, that, that that's probably what he's referring to in 2 Peter 2. Uh, that he's referring to the angels that have fallen in... Uh, Genesis 6, that were committed to pits of darkness. They were in bondage awaiting their judgment. I might suggest that this was also the common Jewish interpretation of Genesis 6 that was prevalent in uh, the first century. And uh, there are some more things I might be able to say about that, but I'll stop there. Um, And you don't have to agree with that at all. but that's why I think that that's what he's talking about here. What comments and thoughts do you have? You may not want to go down this trail if you don't. That's fine. Um, I just never had heard of a judgment day for angels. Is there a way in which they'll be judged? I think so. Uh, there's not a lot in the Bible about that, but what about First Corinthians 6 uh, on that point? While this doesn't give us a lot of details, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? Now, he'd said in verse 2, we'll judge the world. I take it that we judge angels in the world together with Jesus, not independently. But the part of our reigning with Jesus will involve us judging angels. I would also suggest, while this doesn't so clearly maybe talk about the judgment day for them per se, you've got a passage like Matthew 25, where in Matthew 25, 41, Jesus says to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's an eternal fire that God made ready for the devils and angels. Now, men will go there too if they're not faithful to God, but the original design of the eternal fire was for the devil and his angels. So those are some passages that to me imply there is a judgment day for angels. And that the prison that's talked about is hell? I don't, I wouldn't necessarily use the word hell for the prison of Second Peter 2. The original is like Tartarus, which is different from Gehenna. Gehenna is the word we would usually think of as the eternal hell. This is a different word. I don't know how to translate. I don't know what to say about it. You know, uh, maybe the dungeon. That might be a better way of just describing that. I have no idea the comparison between those places. I mean, the Bible does not go into a lot of detail, maybe thankfully, about, you know, the different forms of punishment. You can take, for example, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and it appears that the rich man was in torment when he died. Now, 
I don't think he was in the place of final torment because he hadn't had the judgment day yet. But apparently wherever he was, there was torment for his soul even before the resurrection and the judgment. I don't know how all that, you know, fits together exactly. Yeah, what was hard for me about that is it does seem like hell is that final punishment where they can't do any bad to anybody else again. It just seems like when it talks about the devil and his angels that they're still working. And that is a problem. I don't know how to, uh, you know, uh, Star was asking me afterwards, how do you relate this to like demonic activity and the fact that the, the devil and his angels apparently still operate? I don't know if the fall of these angels in Genesis 6 was a special group of angels that he's referring to here and the devil has other angels that maybe are not imprisoned or if even though they're in these chains and dungeon they still have some function on the earth or did at certain times I'm not sure how to look at that I, again you know there may be more to know than what I realize about that but also you know at some point God doesn't go into great detail about all the functioning of the devil and his side of things. We get some things about that to help us, but, you know, God wasn't necessarily trying to give us a full dissertation on how all that works. So, as far as I know, there's not an answer to that. There may be that I haven't considered. Well, Gary, did the, did the angels then also have a chance to repent? Or were they just doomed without... As far as I know, there's no plan of redemption for angels. That, that once they sinned, that's all there was. They were they were condemned to the pits, awaiting the judgment. Wow. Did you think there was a way? No, I mean just wow in the sense that I mean I feel overwhelmed with this interpret. I, yeah. it, it's not. I don't think that I could defend against it because you've done well explain done well explaining it. I just don't want it. <laughs> I think that's my problem. I really don't like it because it's foreign to me. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Sure. But, and, and I don't think you're a false teacher because you hold that position. But, uh, that's good. And, and I have other reasons. Not because of that. Though. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's just, a, it's difficult. I mean, yeah. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, it'll grow on you if you keep looking. Grow on you. Well, go ahead, Chris. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, in verse 4, it says, I think that little word, if, has to point to something that we that we know of. Yes. Otherwise, he would just tell us the fact right. God didn't spare angels. But he said, well, you know, if God didn't spare angels, which you know about, okay, where was it? Is there, is there any other, can you cite any other example where God didn't spare angels? I can't. Let me say this too. This may put the fat in the fire as far as probably with a lot of people would undermine what I'm saying. But I do think this may be relevant. But I have to defend myself a little bit before I say this. <laughs> there are things that the New Testament reveals that are not revealed in the Old Testament about the Old Testament story. Quite a number of details when it's all said and done. I'm thinking, for example, of what we just went through in 2 Timothy, Janus and Jambres, as the names of the Egyptian magicians. You don't find that in the Old Testament. You find that in Jewish literature that evidently was right on that point. You know, it's not surprising that the Jews, 
historically recorded some things that aren't in the Bible, but that are true, and therefore were revealed in the New Testament, or sort of have God's stamp of approval if they're in the New Testament. I don't think there's anything in the New Testament that could be erroneous. But I don't think that the Old Testament necessarily gave all the details that, that were true, obviously, or that may have been known historically. So there is, and I don't know a lot about this work, but there is an intertestamental work. Uh, and I've not read this. I probably need to sometime if I can find it. Um, of First Enoch. First Enoch gave this interpretation of Genesis 6. They would have been familiar with it. That's particularly stronger in view of the fact that Jude makes a citation uh, that is known historically from First Enoch in uh, Jude 14 and 15, where he cites what Enoch said. That is a, something that was in First Enoch. Now, I don't think that means First Enoch is inspired. I think it means First Enoch happened to record a historical tradition that was accurate about something that Enoch said, and that Jude, being inspired by God, knew it was true and includes it. But that reference to first e- to, to a story recorded in First Enoch by Jude, and the fact that the Jews clearly knew about that, and they knew this interpretation of Genesis 6, makes it more likely that Peter could just say, if God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, because they would have understood from their <coughs> historical tradition that yes, when those angels sinned, as recorded in Genesis 6, they knew God punished them. Now, we would assume God punished him anyway, but that would have given more evidence for that. So that's another piece of evidence for whatever we want to take that in terms of, of the interpretation. I wouldn't use that to prove it, because I would not use a non-biblical book to prove the interpretation. But I would use it to say that they were very familiar with the story and with this understanding of the story. Look at I was thinking about what Chris said about maybe the if changing the meaning of whether or not God spared the angels. I've kind of, I've kind of, uh, I'm kind of stretching both ways with this. But it says, but uh, one point I can against is it said he also says if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and if he rescued the righteous lot, which he did. But here, but here's where it gets technical: is the words in italics, which means it's added in by the translators. See, the if isn't in italics in verse 4, but in verses 6 and 7, it is. It, it's carried over. It, this is all, but if God didn't spare the angels, if he condemned the cities, if he rescued righteous Lot. And this is not an if of doubt. This is, this is an if of, as you know is true. You know, since God. You know, sometimes we use if as a doubtful thing. But in this case, clearly it's not. You know... He's sort of saying, well, if this is true, which it is, we all know it is, then, so it's the if then, not the if of doubt. But but I think it's legitimately carried over in 6 and 7, that's just part of the construction. He doesn't use another if, but it's still in that line, just makes the reading a little smoother for us. Sure. You can say anything. Um, And your understanding is that Jude is saying, just like Sodom Gomorrah, in the same sense, these angels also went after the strange world. Is it possible that instead of he just saying, 
just as God destroyed these, not because he's maybe not dealing with the, the, the sin that the angels did in the sense of strange flesh, but he may be saying, just as God destroyed his own people, just as God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, just as God destroyed angels, not pointing to that the being the same sin, just but the the sense of they sinned, therefore they got they were judged. It's more difficult because of a couple things. He not only has the just as, but he has the since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality. Adding that also makes it more difficult not to see them sinning in the same way. And if it was just the punishment, I don't know that we really would assume that the angels are undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. At least that's not what's stated, you know, in verse 6. So I think the 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 double statement of comparison makes it more that they committed the same type of sin. You know, it's amazing to me how strong the evidence is in my book on this. I don't care. I mean, however this turns out, it's fine. But, you know, once you start really looking at it, and for me, 1 Peter 3, the more you look at it, the more you start examining the other theories, they don't work. I think 1 Peter 3 just doesn't work well. Uh, the most common explanation of 1 Peter 3 that I've heard of, if it's not this, is that God in some spiritual sense was in Noah when he preached to the people in his generation who later were in prison. But that is a real stretch with the grammar of verse 19. Uh, that, that's not easy to make it fit that. Uh, all the way around. So... You know, you can you can think about that, and like I say, I mean, it's no big deal. If if, if this isn't the case, it's fine. Uh, but I feel fairly confident uh, because those passages seem pretty strong to me in that way. But it is a good reason to study and to think, and you know, it's good to challenge our thinking and uh, you know try to try to look at, at different things, and then. It may be that you can look through that and say and figure out ways of disproving that, which would also be helpful. So uh, when when you disprove it, well, I'll be glad to uh, to listen and think about it. Um, in five, and he did not spare the ancient world. You know, it's not just the, the angels. That's that's big because it's angels. But verse five is big because it's the whole ancient world. <laughs> Uh, he preserved Noah with seven others, but he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. That's a really powerful example because, I mean, it's just the whole world he destroyed. And notice also that Noah is called a preacher of righteousness. I don't think you would have known that from the Old Testament record. But it seems to me to fit what we know about Noah as a righteous man. Any man of God is concerned about the rescue of others or in danger of destruction. So it seems to me like it's very appropriate as we now find out that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Would that have meant he was in a way an inspired teacher? I don't know that it would have necessarily meant that. and be a preacher without being inspired. <laughs> a few examples right here. <laughs> We're inspiring. That's <laughs> it. <laughs>
can't even condemn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Now this is an interesting thing he does here. Because verses 5 and 6 refer to the destruction, an, an earthly destruction. But verse 5, the destruction is accomplished by means of what element? And verse 6, by means of what element? Now that's going to be very relevant when we come over to chapter 3. You know, he, he lines those up, I think, purposely. In, you know, the world he destroyed by water, now he turns around and destroys Sodom and Gomorrah by fire. But he also rescues righteous Lot. Um, and he calls him righteous two more times in this context. Um, we might have had a difficult time applying that term to him. <laughs> Maybe it shows the mercy and grace of God. Uh, maybe there's hope for several of us if Lot is righteous Lot. Um, but what's good about Lot that you see in verses 7 and 8? He was distressed about the, about the book of Sin. How badly distressed was he? Tormented. Tormented. Yeah. This really bothered him. You know, he was in Sodom seeing a bunch of garbage. And you look at Genesis 19, it's horrible. Um, Ezekiel 16 talks about some other sins of Sodom that we don't even find out about in Genesis 19. And it tormented Lot. He was oppressed by seeing the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Are we? You know, we can laugh all we want to about righteous Lot. I wonder if we've even got his righteousness. You know, because we are in a world that indulges in gross immorality. <laughs> and instead of having our righteous soul tormented day after day, we may choose to uh, see some of that for our entertainment on a daily basis. And sort of enjoy that. Kind of like, you know, uh, hearing about it. And knowing about it. And sort of pride ourselves on our tolerance and open-mindedness toward all of this corruption. At least righteous Lot hated what he saw. So I'm wondering if we share Lot's torment of soul over the gross immorality that is around us. That might be a really good passage to think about in connection with the things we voluntarily choose to see for entertainment. Comments and questions? Reminds me of what we said in Isaiah about shutting shuts his eyes from looking at Yes. Yeah, and, and actually I think there's some Psalms that say that as well. So, yeah. Uh, a righteous man doesn't doesn't want to see evil. What would you? I, I thought about this. Some I don't know if it's right. What do you think about that? I wondered too if we're held to a higher standard than what because we have more knowledge of who God is. I don't know that that what he maybe did. 
we have more information. I think it's reasonable to think that the more we know and the more blessings and privileges we have, the more God expects of us. I think that's a fair biblical principle. So I would think that we would we'd have more expectations on us than Lot would have had. Which is, I've had a really hard time with that recently. <coughs> Abraham, Abraham having concubines and things like that, that it just seems like every single righteous you know, man of faith in the Old Testament did, that, that was just accepted, that yeah, you may even have just a difference in some places about what God tolerated. I don't know that God really told Abraham and others that concubinage was bad. I don't think that was God's ideal, but but I don't think there was really necessarily a restriction on that. Right, and so I've thought a lot about that with Lot offering his, his daughters that maybe that really did seem a lot better. And that he just, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, even at that. Whoa. <laughs> that is hard for me to swallow. Mm-hmm. All the way around. I mean, not, wow. Just knowing what those, what that kind of men were like. Wow. I, I don't, I can't quite reconcile that. Yeah, like the, like the minute I give you. Yes. Like, I, I wonder that's probably what happened to him. Yeah, wow, yeah. <laughs> and we, we would normally see that as the Levites' total coldness and insensitivity to offer his concubine and then to, you know, get up, <laughs> or whatever. This <clears throat> makes me think of some of the things that were said in, in the Isaiah studies that we, we don't avoid certain types of entertainment just because it makes a sin. You could go to a movie that doesn't have any um, <coughs> any inappropriate scenes in it, but it glorifies immorality, you know, by um, showing the happy ending for the man that runs off away from his wife with some girl. And I think it would be good for us to apply that to several other things that we see. You know, what about a glorification of violence or of murder? And um, that's, I think that's a lot more accepted um, to us than it should be. A lot more accepted than things like swearing or, or, um, or sex in movies is accepted. I, it seems to me like if we're going to be followers of the Lord, we ought to be disgusted by the same things that disgust Him. I mean, we obviously we can't change what everybody does. And it's true that living in the world, there's some things that we will unavoidably have contact with. I think that's true. I think Jesus did. But I don't think we enjoy immorality and wickedness. I don't think we find it entertaining and appealing. You know, however much it may be there, or however much in certain situations it may be unavoidable to us to be around it, I think we must have our righteous soul tormented by these things. I think we ought to hate it. It ought to just really hurt us. Um, and, and, And maybe the problem that we have 
is that we've been in Sodom so long, we've grown accustomed to these things, they don't seem to be a problem anymore. You know, this is fine. And, and that's where, man, we're really in trouble. If, 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 if it just doesn't bother us anymore, I don't really care. I mean, you know, I wouldn't choose to do it, but, you know, whatever they do is fine. I mean, I don't, you know, it's not a big deal. You know, I think we might sometimes say that almost proudly. You know, like, you know, I've really become a broad-minded person. But I don't think that's a mark of, you know, honor at all. I think that's a terrible warning sign. We've lost our affinity with the Lord. I think a lot of times, stuff like that, we don't really think about how it affects us. Like, I had a discussion with one guy about uh, hearing profanity in music, and it was at, it was actually a friend of a friend of mine, but he thought he thought that uh, no, there wasn't anything wrong with it because you don't automatically say cuss words when you hear it. And I thought I thought for a while about that, and I thought, you know, the problem with that is he he just when people have that kind of thought process. It's really the fact. It's really the same thing when you tell me, show me in the Bible where it specifically says I can't do it. It's the it's the fact of if you can't show. It's really the fact of our attitude behind it. If we don't hate sin, then there's something wrong. And we also need to think about how it affects us as Christians at several different levels. Mm-hmm. A, a question then. Um, <clears throat> um, and if we have gotten slack in that attitude, how do we renew that, or how do you develop that hatred for sin? And number two, how do sometimes you develop the the hatred for sin and still the love for the sinner? Because you know, I remember when when you left the prison. I mean, some of the guys would come in and say that you know the homosexuals there and what was going on. They said, they said, not only do we hate what they, we hate them. You know, it was just, and then they said, you know, how do you detach that hatred for what they do and separate it from them? You know, do you want to qualify that me leaving the prison? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, 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 instead of putting me in there, from there. No, um, well, as far as our developing this, I mean, I think we have to come to love God more and be closer to God. I think we have to, you know, I mean, the more the more we share in the holiness and righteousness and passion for the will of God that Jesus had, then the more we're going to, we're going to see things the same way he does. You know, and I don't know, I mean, I think the more we, the more we really love God, then everything that hurts him we hate. Um, I think, yeah, it's tough you know, to balance some of those things, because Jesus really loved the, you know, tax collectors and sinners, you know, he but I think he loved them in the sense that he tried to rescue them from that and he saw in some of them more humility and openness to God than some of the smug, self-righteous Pharisees or whatever. But I don't know, there's so many, and it's hard to know how to balance all that for me as well. Uh, Because it's also true, man, there's just so many complimentary truths. It's also true that God doesn't just hate the sinner, he hates the sin, or doesn't just hate the sin, he hates the sinner too in some messages. I mean, 
I think it depends on whether or not somebody's willing to repent or not. What our attitude is toward them. <coughs> and certainly Jesus showed a lot of attention to people that society obviously saw as sinners. But those who he saw as with the hard hearts not even would consider turning to God and being humble. Those people who didn't you know, he didn't eat with, he didn't, uh, in, in general, he didn't associate the same ways with him, and all the disciples shake the feet off, from the, the, the dust off your feet. <laughs> I could, could use that one for a team name, though. <laughs> 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 that, that kind of idea that he, he I guess that, The idea of loving the sinner and hating the sin is pushed to an extreme when, when we generalize Jesus' mission. And we see, well, he saw everybody, he loved everybody, and in a sense he wanted everybody's salvation. But he will condemn people to hell I mean, because of their uh, unwillingness to submit. And, I mean, we read, it was noted several times, how many dozens of times in the Psalms that the psalmist would rejoice over even physical destruction of their enemies. Yes, indeed. He did go to dinner a few times at Pharisees' houses, but yeah, you're right. There's a lot to take in. So it's hard to have our attitude and heart line up with God. You know, we just, I mean, it's one reason we need, just need to study Jesus so much more and just, just meditate on him and everything the Bible says and try to get our whole way of thinking lined up well with God's. Because there's a lot to this. You know, it's not just one thing to think about. There's a lot of things that have to be held in balance. How's our temperature in here? Are we okay or is it too warm? Everybody okay? Um, so look at his summary then in verse 9. You know, if all this is true, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. You know, God does both. He'll rescue the godly and he keeps the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, that's basically verse 4 where he you know, he basically kept the angels in the pits of darkness. Here in general, he keeps the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. That's his point. You know, the false teachers will be destroyed because God knows how to punish the unrighteous. And then he specifies in verse 10, especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, which are the two things that you see characteristic of the false teachers. And I think tied together. Because they were indulgent in their fleshly desires, they didn't like authority. They didn't like the whole idea of anybody telling them anything to do because they wanted to do what they felt like in terms of their fleshly desires. And so those particularly are unrighteous ones that God will punish in the day of judgment. 
And that kind of is our transition again, as the end of three was, into a further discussion of those false teachers that God is going to punish. Comments and questions? Kind of scary to how that reads that God knows how to punish. <laughs> I think punishment's punishment in our country, you know, people get punished different ways, but it's all punishment. But it seems that some are more effective than others. <laughs> God knows how to punish. That's kind of he does too, doesn't he? He's done some pretty, uh, you know, outstanding jobs punishing. And then Mary's not involved with 42 is creative. <laughs> <laughs> or, or be creative, as the case might be. <laughs> but you're exactly right. You know, the Lord is at no lack of means to punish. I mean, you think about all the different things God has used for punishment. Wow. He can do it. And also, when you look at all the ways God has saved us, and the opposite of that, how many ways, how much He saved us from all the ego. You look at Matthew 1 Corinthians 10 13, there's no temptation that we have that we cannot bear. He gives us a way, a way of escape. Can help us do this. Absolutely. It's both sides of this. He does know how to rescue the godly, and he's done it in situations that you thought he could never do it. And in, in times when you thought it was hopeless. And and he's managed to, you know, yank Lot out of, uh, you know, those cities almost as they were being pelted with the fire and brimstone. He managed to preserve Noah and his family in one of the most unlikely of all possible scenarios. I mean, it's like, wow. The Lord knows both things, and he does it well. You better be one of the godly ones. I mean, that he keeps coming back to that idea. The godly and the unrighteous. Which side do you want to be on? This is all ultimately motivating us to live like he says to live, starting in 1-3. Kind of two creative ways to save in Lost Story you have. Lot being saved and his wife turning to salt. Those are two very creative ways to save and to destroy and judge. You're right. Other comments? Alright, he's going to go from here to a discussion of these two points about the false teachers. In reverse order, he's going to talk about how they despise authority and then talk about how they indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires. So 10b to 16. Old and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the the glorious things. Whereas angels though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as they wage, um, as the wage for their wrongdoings. They count it pleasure to reveal in the, in the daytime, to revel in the daytime, they are blots and blemishes, revealing in their deceptions. While they feast with you, <clears throat> they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. 
They They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed uh, the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain for wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with um, with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Wow. These are not good guys. <laughs> Shoot. I mean, he starts, you know, with the idea of their despising authority, their daring and self-will. You know, they don't want anybody to restrain them. They want to do what they want to do. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. I have no idea what that's like. I've read several things and none of them seem right to me. Anybody have a suggestion? I'll leave it at that then. Um, Where is that? The end of 10. And even 11, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. In some way, it must be that the angels defer to God and they don't take the authority upon themselves to put a judgment against the wicked false teachers. But still, that's I think there's more to it than that. And I just don't understand it. I have a note here. I don't know if it's true or not. But it says this is presumption that they are above all they rebuke dignitaries and somewhere else in the Bible dignitaries refers to angels. Don't know if that's right. I'm just going to throw it out there. Yeah, the word is literally glories. The word translated angelic majesties is really glories. And that's that opens up a lot of possibilities, but none of them make a lot of sense to me. So. <clears throat> In verse 12, I think I may be able to deal with this. These, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. <laughs> now think about an animal. What do you think of when you think of an animal? Lion. Lion. Oh, yeah, I don't mean what animal. But what do you think of when you think of animals as a category? <laughs> Lower? What? Lower, less uh, yeah. intelligent. Yeah. <laughs> kind of dull. Yeah, kind of. And, and what, what, what motivates an animal? Instinct. Instinct. How do we say instinct? What does that mean? Think, think about how you put some of that together. Um, you know, a lot of animals, if you're trying to, you know, deal with them, you trap them. Why does an animal fall for the trap? Why do mice get into a mouse trap? You know the answer to that, right? Stupid. That's part of it. <laughs> but what's the what's they want the, bait. they want the bait? Why do they want the bait? Yeah. They're, yeah, absolutely. They got that appetite. They can smell that cheese. Sometimes peanut butter seems to work better. They smell the peanut butter. 
you know, and and so they 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 go for it, you know. Their feelings, their instinctive appetites, end up being the means of their own destruction. They end up being easily trapped and killed because of that. That's what these guys are like. They're like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed because their self-indulgence, their following after their own appetites and desires, is what's going to be their downfall. They revile where they have no knowledge. Uh, they, they, don't, they don't have depth. They don't have reasoning. They just sort of act by, by, by their feelings. Isn't that so much the way people are today? You know, whatever you feel, almost like it was an instinct inside of you, you just, you just gratify it. You know, I mean, what do you do? I, I've used this before, obviously, but what do you do when you get hungry? What do we not do anymore? Wait till supper. Isn't that true? How many of you, if you got hungry, would generally wait till supper? Yeah, about three of you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that so much the way we are? And I don't know if it makes any difference whether you wait till supper or not. But, but we do that with so many other things. What does somebody do when they want something that doesn't belong to them? Grab it. You know, take it. Uh, what what do you, what do you do if you have a a lustful desire? Well, gratify it. You know, I mean, it's almost like, well, what would you expect? You know, people today, well, they're young. You know, they have, they have, you know, emotions, uh, whatever. I mean, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna do this. That's the unreasoning animal. It's exactly what animals do. Animal in heat, well, it, you know, tries to find a partner. I mean, it's just, it's just their, their instinct. It's their, their, you know, inbred feeling, but. But they don't have any rationality to be able to control those things. Oh, yeah. Salesperson, too. Hello? teachers get to the point where we just do what we feel like. You know, whatever it is. You know, I, I, I want it. We, we've got to have discipline to be men and not enemies. And, and he says, when they revile what they have no knowledge, they'll in the destruction of these creatures, those creatures also be destroyed. If you live like an animal, you're going to die like an animal. You know, God's going to treat you like an animal. Comments and questions through verse 12. I think it's the very opposite. You just hit me with one. I mean, just starting when you were saying all that, that the very opposite of self-control and these other characteristics. That, and, and, and self-control is just, I mean, I mean, we're losing it as a society. We're losing it even as 
you know, just you can you can eat what you want, you can get. It's so easy. And, and the thing about marriage today, you know, why stay married when it's when it gets rough? Go out and find something easier. You know, there's there's so little commitment and dedication to anything, and it's just just the opposite of you know you've been freed from this corrupt nature, live like this, and yet here's the very opposite of the way these are living. You know, it, it, it's it's frightening to see how parallel we are to these false teachers in so many ways, and you can just keep going. I mean, look in verse 13 when they counted a pleasure to revels in the daytime. That makes me think of a couple of things. Obviously, reveling would be like carousing and, you know, carrying on with reckless abandon. If they do it in the daytime, what does that tell you about them? Two things to me. Absolutely. Why do you usually do things like that in the dark? Trying to hide it. There's a reason why, you know, we talk about nightlife. Uh, you, you feel bolder when you can't be seen. Well, but those who have no shame, they don't care about hiding it. Just go ahead and revel in the open daylight. Uh, wow. There's another thing that I think when they revel in the daytime that that tells you about. I should get in trouble. That's true, but it's not what I was thinking about. Yes, that's kind of what I was thinking. It's irresponsible. It's kind of like just live it up whenever you feel like it. Reminds me of Ecclesiastes uh, um, chapter 10 and verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. The idea of feasting in the morning is the idea, hey, they wanted to do something self-indulgent, so they did it. Normally, you know, you work during the daytime, and then you, you do what you want to at night. <clears throat> or you work during the week, and you have fun on the weekend. Here are people who enjoy, you know indulging their desires in the morning, in the daytime, when they're supposed to actually be doing something responsible. Again, it's that self-indulgent mentality. When I feel like doing what I feel like doing, then I'll do it. Who cares about responsibility? I don't feel like going to work today. You know, I don't think I wanted to do it. Just that kind of an idea of, you know, I'm just going to please myself. You know, I was... I was Read the paper this morning about how some employers are letting it be known that the work computers are not to be used to watch the NCAA basketball tournament. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, we're in a society that, hey, you got a computer, the game's on, who cares about work? Game's more fun. It's always like, what's more fun? Whatever the fun is, no matter what the time is, I'll do it. It's that self indulgent spirit of these false teachers. No wonder they didn't want Jesus to come back. No wonder they denied the second coming of the judgment. You, you don't want to believe in that kind of stuff if you're this kind of a person. Again, their stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Wow, they're just, they're just all about fun. 
self-indulgence. Comments and questions through 13. Um, I think it's a lot. I'm going to say it again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you have never heard me say this, then... You're all about your fun, aren't you? Yeah. I'm sorry to say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're probably more sorry than I am. But this all comes down to where's our focus. If our focus is on ourselves and what we want, we're going to do what we want. But the example to these people is, these people, their focus is on themselves. It's on themselves. They get what they want. But your focus is not to be on yourself. If this is, like, that's the exact opposite of the list he had just said in 1, 5 through 7. You should put on these things, these are the godly things to do, and these men are putting on themselves what they want. Where's our focus? Is our focus on ourselves or on what God wants us to do? And which one will be more, which one will have more blessings come from it, the knowledge of the Lord and knowledge of what I want? Yeah, look at the contrast with 1, 5, 1, 4. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. These people haven't escaped it. They're immersed in it. That's all they care about. Look at 14. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Wow. I mean, you wonder, how could Peter have written that and not have been in the 21st century? That, that is so much. That is so much. 21st century America. I mean, wow. Sex is used to sell everything. And it's just thought of, you know, lustful thinking and pornography is normal. It's everywhere. Eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. These are these false teachers. These are these guys who are supposed to be teaching the truth. No wonder the way of truth is maligned by them. And uh, God cares. Now notice here. I mean, in, in specific terms. He is condemning them for their eyes. You know, it's not just a matter of, well, I didn't do anything. I looked, but I didn't act. Well, the look is what he's condemning here. The eyes full of adultery. The wandering eye, the lustful eye. It's just degrading an animal the way we often are. With just what we look at and, 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 you know, crave. Enticing unstable souls. You know, they were corrupting those who weren't stable. And then, having a heart trained in greed. Don't you love that expression? I mean, they were not amateurs in greed. They trained at it. You know, they worked hard at it. They, they perfected, it was an art for them. To be greedy. You know, I mean, everything self-indulgent you can say about somebody seems to be in this passage. Comments and questions through verse 14. Your eyes were connected to your heart. Yeah, exactly. You look at this picture, is that what we want? You know, so often we don't connect the dots. You know, we would say, well, yeah, I struggle with this. Well, yeah, I don't do well with that. Yeah, I'm not doing too good with this. Do you see what this becomes? Think about the animal that these people were. And when I don't control my desires, and I just give myself over to whatever it is I want to look at and think and do, that's exactly where I'm at. 
we often underestimate that. You know, it's, it's interesting to me how, you know, I'll sometimes be talking to, to somebody, say, about, you know, oh, internet abuse or something like that. And, and they'll be like, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing better. Well, what does doing better mean? <laughs> well, uh, so, so uh, you know, have you, have you not, you know, looked at anything you shouldn't in the last month? No, I, no, I, I have. In the last week? Well, no, I have. You know, well, well, doing better, man, I have in the last couple hours. You know, I mean, we often deceive ourselves into imagining, well, I'm okay. And if we be honest with ourselves, it's a disgusting picture of corruption. And it's a shame because God in his divine powers granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given us the way to live godly and escape the corruption that's in the world through lust, but we've chosen to turn back into all that garbage. And he's really strong about that all the way through the rest of this chapter because he does not want those that he's writing to to follow after the corruption of these false teachers who are just animals. This is an illustration. There's a music group who had a song one time called In America, and one of the lines of that song was only, it was listing a bunch of negative things about the immorality of our country, and one of the things it said was, only in America, sexuality is democracy. I think, I think there's, that's one, that's a very accurate way, I think, to describe the situation country's in. It's disgusting. Look at look at verse fifteen and sixteen. Who did he compare them to? You know what Balaam did? And he rich. Yeah, he did. And he didn't wasn't too particular about how he went about doing it either. You remember what the how how was he proposing to get rich? Cursing God's people. Yes. The people God said he himself had blessed. But he really wouldn't take no for an answer. Kept trying to go back and find out what else the Lord would tell him. See if he could get a loophole somehow. And even when, you know, he had to, you know, argue with the donkey until his, you know, eyes were finally open to see that if the donkey had gone on, he'd had his head cut off. Then he said, well, you know, if it, if it displeases you, know, I can go back home, Lord. Well, it says, well, go right ahead, but you'll only say what I tell you to say. And, and that was so, but it had to have been so frustrating for poor Balaam. Every single time he tried to open his mouth and curse him, out came a blessing. <laughs> Four different times he tried it. And he could not control his mouth. That blessing came out no matter how much he tried to do otherwise. So you know what the rest of the story is with, with Balaam, don't you? You know, putting together several passages, Numbers 31, particularly Numbers 25, and some New Testament references, it appears that what Balaam did was to take the uh, indirect approach. And he told Balak, look, you know, I can't curse him, but if you will send your women in among them and entice them, God will curse them. So he gave counsel to entice the Israelites to their downfall through idolatry and immorality. He became the prototype 
of, of people who teach false doctrine for money, of those who, who, who trip up God's people, cause them to stumble. As he says here, having followed the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. And, and, and he was the, the forerunner of these false teachers, and he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man which restrained the madness of a prophet. You know, their great forerunner was rebuked by a brute beast. But a dumb donkey knew more about the Lord than a religious man whose moral senses had been perverted by greed. He was rebuked by an animal, and an animal not widely known for his great intelligence. <laughs> Comments and questions through verse 16. I a question about a little bit farther back, but uh, well, it talks about them being blocked up and something about that they like didn't being stains on people, you know, um, or how much, how bad an influence these people would have been. I, I can't help but think that it might be somewhat connected to the feasts that they have with them, but I'm not sure what this one yeah, uh, there's debate about that. Um, but I think they were just partying it up with them. So these people were joining the same thing? I think so, or at least to some extent, yeah. Wow. So, so in a very real sense, they were staining the same I think so. Now, there are a lot of commentators think that he's talking about the love feast that are developed in like the second century. But I don't know about that. It's not as subtle. Yeah. I mean it looks to me like you just saying, you know, they're they're carousing with you. There's a there's a textual difference in verse thirteen, reveling in their deceptions. Uh, there are manuscripts that say reveling in their love feasts. But I think deceptions is probably the right translation. It's it's a textual question, so that that's part of the question mark there as well. All right, other comments and questions through sixteen. Speaking of how Balaam went about enticing Israel, his doing that just seems even more disgusting to me than outright cursing him. It's just. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, just trying to get them to do wrong. What you do when you're greedy. <laughs> they will stop at nothing to get those presents in their life. Unstable? Yeah, I was just thinking that the people they're going after are the people that are making decisions about their spiritual life. You know, they're, they're on the fence getting ready to make the decision and how important it is for us to get there before the false teachers, to have that sense of urgency that these people uh, are going to make a decision and are willing to listen. 
And Paul's teaching is not to busy at work trying to persuade these people, not necessarily the people that are already stuck in their ways, but it's the people that uh, haven't committed uh, really, uh, that that need to be sought, that are in great danger of uh, of falling on the wrong side of that fence and need to have a better sense of urgency about that. Good point. clouds carried by tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. When they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of flesh, through lewdness the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. Yeah, look at this. There's springs without water. Wells without water, if you prefer. What uh, what's that saying about them? Useless shell. Useless shell. I said useless. Yeah, they're disappointment. You know, you're expecting water. Kind of like you know a mirage. You get there, there's nothing. It's so empty. It's so frustrating. They're mist driven by a storm. They're just swept along by whatever forces they encounter. They're not stable. For whom the black darkness has been reserved. You know, there's no future for them. They're, they're enveloped in, in darkness. That's, that's what these false teachers were like. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they enticed by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Again, they wreak havels on the, uh, havoc on the morals of, of those who just barely escaped the error. The, the young, the new convert, the one who's the weakest, they prey on them and they entice them back with sensuality, with fleshly desires. They teach them it's okay. That, that, I mean, that they prey on the very weakness of these people. They promise them freedom. You know, you can... You can be free. You don't have to have, you know, all these rules and regulations. All these, you know, they're always so negative. They're saying you can't do this, you can't. Here, here's the way to be free and to be be unrestricted. But are these false teachers free? They don't. They don't follow any rules, do they? They're not be free in this life. But I don't think they're even free in this life. They're, bond, they're in bondage to their sin. Exactly. You know, this whole idea of freedom when we're a slave to our own appetites, there's no freedom in that. You know, it's disgusting. And we end up hating ourselves. You know, because we can't get out of it. Because we're bound by our own addictions and obsessions and whatever. They may say, talk about freedom, they're not even free. How can they offer you freedom? Look at them. 
I mean, I'd say, you know, what happened to this New York governor? You know, I mean, unbelievable amounts for, you know, prostitutes. You know, he was he was rich enough and powerful enough until he finally, you know, government cut off with him. But he was rich enough and powerful enough he can do whatever he wants to. He had freedom. Tell me that's freedom. <laughs> to go around being addicted to having different women come in when you're married and have three teenage daughters. That's not freedom. You know, some people look at that and say, wow, he can just do anything he wanted. He could, he, could, he could pay anything he wanted to for that. But what man with any sense of self-respect would want that? that that's a, a form of addiction to corruption. It's just disgusting. These people who say they're so free, Peter says, they're not free at all. They're slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he's enslaved. So quit thinking that these people who sin it up are free. I mean, it's not quite so graphic. But it's, I've used this illustration with some of you before, but it's, uh, I forgot even the guy in in prison's name. Uh, Now, it it doesn't come to me. There was a man in the prison that you probably even knew that had a a brother and sister in Cincinnati. And uh, I went up, the brother, the, their name, the boy's name was Champ. And the girl's name was Marie. Champ probably wasn't his real name, I don't know, but, but he was 22 and she was 21, and they were addicted to crack. And so I went up and, and spent a couple hours talking to him. It was so pathetic. She was selling her body to get the crack for him, and he told me he hated it. He hated himself. He didn't want it, and he'd never do it again. And I knew that afternoon he'd be out talking to him. You know, I mean, he hated himself. They both hated themselves. They hated what they were doing. They didn't want it, but they were addicted. That's a graphic example. It's easier to see when it's drugs. But it's the same with any sin addiction. It's, it's, it ends up being something where the sin controls you. You don't control the sin. Comments and questions? I think it's irony that we're a nation that's based on freedom, and yet uh, these politicians appeal to that. And you look Barack Obama's preacher, and you know these great swelling words, you know about freedom being free. I mean, you can be as like Paul and Silas in prison singing at midnight. I mean, they were they were as free as could be because they were slaves of the Lord, and the world the, here was the Philippian jailer in bondage. So. So many paradoxes, but that's exactly right. Yeah, don't don't believe their great swelling words. You know, uh, they'll make it sound good, and it appeals to what we want to believe, but it didn't. First John nineteen reminds us that no man can free us. I mean, that uh, any words from anyone before Jesus couldn't have. Freed us at all? That the only one that can free us is the only is the, the one who is free from corruption. Jesus was the only one that provided the means. Um, and in a sense, we've all been we've all been there. Well, not in a sense, we've all been there. We've all been slaves to corruption. Um, and so, no man can 
tell another one, you know, this is how you need to be free. It's only through Jesus that we've been able to come to you. That's pretty cool. That you see Peter in the very beginning of the book say he's a bondservant of Christ. And yeah, we see here we see slaves to sin, the opposite of that. Seeing how, again, the advantage is, is so much to serve in the Lord and being a bondservant of one that would actually let you go. Certainly. The ones that you can't escape from. Certainly. Yeah, the. Yeah, there's there's a tremendous freedom in the slavery to Christ. There's tremendous bondage in the freedom to sin. Even though it should be the opposite way around. Definitely would be easy to fall into that trap if we're not honest with ourselves about seeing our lives. I guess in a clear perspective. Yes. Yeah, we want to believe. Oh, I'm free. Why don't we take a break for five minutes and uh, work on that?